We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. Before we get to the show, I want to let you know about a live event we're doing in New York. This is Taste is coming at you live again on August 17th with two very special guests, authors Natasha Pikowitz and Claire Saffitz, in conversation with me, Eliza Barbanel. We'll be at Rizzoli Bookstore talking about summer baking, making their latest dessert-centric cookbooks, and more. And it's free to attend. So see you there. First come, first serve. I think it's a golden age for women in television because they're being presented with these TV opportunities that they never had before. And you look at shows like Padma Lakshmi's Taste the Nation or Take Out with Lisa Ling, shows like that where they really get to explore a city or theme or concept. They get to do what Anthony Bourdain always did. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with the founders of not one, but two of America's most exciting independent media brands, each working deeply in and around food. In 2013, former media and beauty executive Carrie Diamond founded Cherry Bomb as a response to the overwhelmingly male-dominated chef and restaurant world. The publication has grown into a serious player, launching podcasts and events that rival some of the major glossies. Kyle Tibbs-Jones is a co-founder and director of media at The Bitter Southerner, a well-regarded magazine and media brand that was founded as a response to the caricatured portrayals of Southern life in mainstream media. The Bitter Southerner has won multiple James Beard Awards and, like Cherry Bomb, is a favorite read for many, including the editors of Taste. I really hope you enjoy these conversations with Carrie Diamond and Kyle Tibbs-Jones. Carrie Diamond, this is Taste. Hi, Matt. How are you? Great to see you. Great to see you. It's been it's been a long time. I know it's been a long time. I used to live in your neighborhood, and and you know I was your customer. I met you. I met you when I was writing for a long forgotten website, and and I interviewed you about music. Do you remember that? I, I sat down in in Searsucker's lit dining room, and and you and I talked about your 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 music past. I do not remember that, but that's probably <laughs> why I continue to like you, Matt. <laughs> it was such a like I, I found out then, and we'll get to a little bit about your your many careers and an incredible trajectory with Cherry Bomb. But you had a music writing past, which is really cool. The tiny music writing past. I mean, I spent I spent. A semester as an intern at Spin Magazine, I thought I wanted to be a music journalist. I was very lucky in that I was sort of adopted by Legs McNeil, who was the head writer at Spin at the time. Hopefully, a lot of you recognize Legs's name. He's the author of Please Kill Me, Oral History of Punk Rock, which is still one of my favorite books. It's classic. And he's still alive and kicking. He is still alive and kicking, yeah. I, I worked for him out of his St. Mark's Place apartment mm. back when punks still roamed St. Mark's Place. And I learned a ton from him. It was it was fascinating. He really did not want to be a teacher or a mentor or anything mm-hmm. like that. That stuff was all incredibly uncool to legs. But every now and then he would say to me, I know I'm supposed to be teaching you stuff. What do you want to learn? 
And I'd say things like, uh, how do I write a great first paragraph? And he would be like, hmm, OK, sit down. And he would put on Apocalypse Now and leave the apartment. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I It's such like method writing back, back, <laughs> back then during like new journalism and mm-hmm. all, all those characters. And Legs named punk rock, which a lot of people yeah. don't realize. He had a fanzine when I think he maybe started it when he was a teenager with with a friend of his, and it was called Punk. And I think it was hand-lettered, and that's how the scene got its name. Not everyone agrees with that assessment, but I think Rolling Stone even has written that In as the, the truth. How was he writing then? What was his, what was his means? Was he always typing away on... on that's a good question. Yeah, there was a very was early computer, yeah. and he was he had gotten a deal to write a book called... He, he, I think Random House maybe gave him a bunch of money to go out to the Hamptons for the summer and impersonate a rich preppy. Mm-hmm. And this was a guy who wore leather pants held together with duct tape, yeah. right? So he does this. He writes a brilliant story about it. They wanted to turn it into a book. He never turned the book in. He was working on the book forever. He was also writing a screenplay about two guys hunting for dinosaurs, dinosaur bones around the country. And I had to, like, I don't know, clean up his grammar and typos because there was no such thing as spell check back then. And he said to me, if you ever tell anybody about the screenplay, you'll never work in this That's town again. great. And, and I was like, people smile? really? No. He didn't say it with a smile. But I, I laughed. I was like, people really say things like that? Yeah. Apparently they do. Was there any food and drink memories when you were working with him in his apartment? Yes. He would give me 49 cents in dimes and nickels and pennies and send me around the corner to buy him a filet of fish sandwich. Oh, my gosh. At the I... McDonald's in the, in the East Village, which has been there forever. Yeah, the one on 1st and 6th. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1st and yeah 6th probably. Yeah. And then do you remember a place called Chenet? Yeah, of course. I, did they serve—I might be mixing up locations, but I think Chenet might have served lunch. It was a—I think it was a— music venue otherwise. And he and I were eating soup in there. (laughs) Such a random memory. He and I were eating soup in there one day and this guy barges in and starts to choke him. And I, I freak out. I don't know what, I don't know what to do. The guy's huge and he's choking legs. And then the guy takes his hands off Legs' neck and starts laughing, and it was Dick Manitoba. Oh, yeah. Handsome Dick. And they're friends. And I guess, I don't know, maybe this is the way guys like to greet each other in the East <laughs> Village back in 1991. Back, uh, Handsome Dick Manitoba ran the bar Manitobas. Uh, very influential character. The I Dictators, was, right? Was that? Yeah, his, exactly. Was that his band? Yeah, yeah. The Dictators. Uh, or no, Handsome, I might be mixing. I, I think know. it's the. It's not The Violators, right? No. The Dictators. Somebody, somebody fact check. Somebody us. will fact check. But but I was I was also an internet spin. My summer was. Wait, I didn't know that. Yeah, 2001, the summer of 2001, right before 9-11, I was an intern there up in the old office in Lexington um, in like 35th or something. What was the office like for you? Because I think it was probably a little different office in the early It was like the 18th early 90- and 7th yeah. or something. Was Bob Guccione Jr. still there when you were there? Vibe was still there. I think they had Bob Guccione had sold. Um, Alan Light was the editor. Saya was the number two, like John Dolan, like really cool, like influential music writing crew there. It was just very scrappy. Yeah. I mean, no supplies, no petty cash. Oh, no. Uh, nothing. No, no. Because you know, now we're swimming in petty cash, man. Oh, yeah. No, and, right. We, and we, supplies. We can and get to running like indie media. We're going to get to that. Um, but back to my first interaction with you was you were a restaurant operator and you had had this, this history and, and, and career in media. 
before at working at Condé Nast and other places. And um, but you ran Searsucker, which opened in 2011. You ran Smith Canteen, which ran for eight years and operated. You also ran Nightingale Nine, Shouts to the Chocolate Vong, like still to me the best version of that, including Vietnam to me. Love that dish. It's all with your former partner, Rob Newton. Okay, so the question is, wild times. Terry. Is that the the question or the wild the times? Statement? Question mark. <laughs> it was wild times. Yeah, I think to call me a restaurant operator is being very generous. I was a restaurant owner who had another big full time job, and uh, did her best and tried to help out and not get in the way terribly. And I look back on those times fondly. Uh, I learned a ton. Restaurants. The whole restaurant world really got in my blood, and I learned why it's so special and why people just kind of are addicted to working in restaurants. Uh, if you've watched The Bear, mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of that was my life. It's it's a little hard to watch that show, yeah. knowing what I now know. It, it was definitely wild times. I wish I had known more than I did. I wish I knew what I know now. Yeah. Because maybe my restaurants would still be open. Oh, my gosh. I mean, eight years running Smith Canteen, the coffee program, way ahead of its time. Tough space. And I do have to give all the credit to Rob. I mean, my partner, Rob Newton, uh, really was the the brains behind the operation. Brilliant chef. Yeah. And people just loved the food he was was, – he and his team were churning out in those places. And really special places that I think were kind of ahead of their time. And sometimes when you're ahead of your time, it doesn't always work out. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, running these restaurants, you you launched Cherry Bomb in 2013. So how did you segue the energy from being an operator? You're, you're modest. You you were there a lot. I mean, you're you're an operator. You're, Rob is doing the food, but you're in front of house. Mm. No? Again, okay. very generous. Very Matt. generous. Okay. I did do the playlists. You did the playlists. Yes, I was obsessive were, okay. about the playlists. Well, Cherry Bond started taking over your time. I did, it, I did a lot. I did the social. I did, yeah. I did all the miscellaneous tasks that there's often no one to do. I mean, I saw you clearing shit up. Like I would like roll in and and carry you're there at at Searsucker at least. I did work harder at Smith Canteen. <laughs> that was our coffee shop yeah. and I took over ownership of that yeah. toward the end. And you know, I was in there washing dishes and yeah. uh, washing the windows and sweeping the storefront and mopping the floor like I did it all. But I did it in reverse. I should have done all that in the beginning. Yeah. So you're, you're in 2013, you're you're thinking about uh, publishing uh, a magazine, a print, print zine, and obviously we established you, you have a long history with media and, and zine culture. Uh, what was missing in food media when you decided to launch Cherry Bomb in 2013? Wow, it's been that long. I can't believe it. Women were missing. That's what was missing. It's so hard. When I hear those words come out of my mouth now, I almost feel like I'm gaslighting myself. And I really have to remind myself that I think I think I had the idea for it probably in 2011. I mean, we did work on, you know, Claudia Wu, who was my partner at the time. We worked on the magazine for a while before it launched. So, you know, you don't, sometimes you can just have an idea and bring it to life immediately, but that wasn't the case. It was a a long, a longish gestation. It was an interesting time in food media. It was a very bro-y time, you know, Bourdain and, and, David Chang and uh, Mario Batali, names, you know, we don't really talk about that much anymore. Uh, They ruled the restaurant world. 
and they were very powerful. And it, again, it's isn't it, Matt? It's it's almost hard to imagine that it was like that. And I didn't really know much about the restaurant world. Like you said, I came from from a different world. I came from the world of women's media and products. I worked at Women's Wear Daily and Harper's Bazaar and then Lancome and Coach. So I get to the restaurant world and I'm like, what is going on? Why are women treated like second-class citizens? And I had real proof that it was happening. You know, you remember this. There were tons of food events back then, yeah. right? Remember, like yeah. every weekend there was some kind of event Yeah, somewhere. usually with a table and a chef and, and, and or parties and a lot of alcohol and all that. Exactly. And I would help organize these things for Rob. You know, they would ask him to be part of it. I would take over the the handling of that. And I would always say, who else, who else is participating? Because you don't want to get your, you know, your star chef involved in some event that doesn't have awesome people participating Mm -hmm. in it. And they would tell me the names of the chefs who were doing it. And I would say, do you guys know there are no women on your list? And they would say, oh yeah. Do you know any? Oh my gosh. (laughs) And it literally happened over and over and over again. And I started recommending people to them. And It just really got to me. At the same time, because I had come to restaurants with no previous experience, I really was craving community. And I'll be totally honest, I just wanted some friends in the restaurant world. And I think the collision of me craving community and coming from this world where women ran everything and to see, I just didn't understand why it was happening. You know, why the cover of Food and Wine, Best New Chefs would be like all men, one woman, one yeah. woman. Why all these events would have no women. Why, you know, there were a lot of women running food media, but not prioritizing the stories of women. And let me ask you, I mean, the common argument, particularly at the time when there's a lot of lot of pushback was that the women don't really work in, in, in the industry. You know, women aren't running kitchens. Um... They were literally being blocked from getting jobs. In is kitchens. that explain that a little bit? Because yeah, I mean, we've we've had women tell those stories on Radio Cherry Bomb, you know, my show uh, for years. I mean, we've done hundreds of episodes. I've heard the story hundreds of times. You know, I also think women didn't necessarily want those jobs, you know, because it was seen as a boys club, because yeah. they weren't welcome in any way because there weren't obvious paths through that industry for them. So I think a lot of women started looking at other opportunities in food, and that's kind of why we have this explosion now of so many interesting women in food doing their own thing. I mean, look at the James Beard nominations for New York. Four out of five chefs are female, and I think that's obviously there's been a real recognition of this changing, and and rightfully so, this, this talent that is has really bubbled up in the past decade. I mean, it's a crazy decade. I mean, it's been a while, but... Um, but I think I think it's almost like there was literally a sign hung out that said, you're not welcome. I know. And again, I when I think back, I'm like, how is that even possible? Because it has changed so radically in the past 10 years. I was flying back from Paris the other week and I couldn't sleep. And I started watching an old Anthony Bourdain season and... Remember Cook It Raw? Mm-hmm. Cook It Raw was this kind of chef collective, and they would get all these chefs together and take them to a really sexy location every year, and they would give them this challenge. And in this particular one, they were in Japan, and they had to go forage all their own food and then cook for, I don't know, like 50, 100 fabulous guests. And I'm watching it, and 
literally it was all male chefs. There was not a single female chef who was invited to participate in the program. And they asked David Chang to describe Cook It Raw. And he said, it's like the Boy Scouts. And I laughed and I was like, it's literally like the Boy Scouts. But the good news is things have changed dramatically. And women... There's still problems out there. Things are oh, not yeah. things are far from perfect, but there are way more opportunities for women in the food world today than ever before. And we are are, are so lucky to to be living in that world now and just having fresh perspective. And we have to shout out like Anita Lowe and Dominique Crenn and Claudia Fleming and and Amanda Cohen and and some of the individuals who were operating at that time when Cook It Raw was a boys' club and and Lucky Peach was a boys' club and it was always just the boys, you know, drowning out um, these voices. So I have to recognize those names and there's many more too. And some cities were better than others. Yeah. If I hadn't been based in New York, had I been based maybe in San Francisco or in Boston, even where. They have deep histories of having incredible women on the food scene and running restaurants. Maybe Cherry Bomb never would have been born. But New York was enough to piss me off that I wanted to launch an entire (laughs) Uh, print-only magazine. You launched with Carly Kloss on the cover, and you've had over, what, 28? What are you at, 27? Uh, 22. Okay, 22. I'm giving you a few more, but it's just – we'll get to a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of how you run Cherry Bomb, how it's not just a print magazine – Though the content is only available in the print, which I love so much. We're so old school that way. It's smart. It's it, Monocle does it too. But let's just get into the nuts and bolts of running independent media right now. What is your greatest challenge? I, I feel like we could vent. We could have a little bit of this like therapy session because Taste is obviously a very small operation too. We we operate within Penguin Random House, but we have a number of the financial challenges um, that you, I'm sure, face. But what are those challenges? I would say time and money are the two biggest <laughs> challenges. Never enough time, never enough money. <laughs> enough said. I mean, do you feel like with that being said, that with a little more money and maybe a little more time, there's a bright future for small independent media right now? Oh, that's the future, 100%. I think I think the way media is going is either big and more mass or niche. I don't think there's a lot of room if you're in the middle, and I'm very happy to occupy niche. And you know what? I want to go back and say and kind of amend my time and money answer. That's sort of the obvious answer. I think that's the problem for any entrepreneur out there. My hardest problem is having to say no to people. Mm-hmm. That's the hardest thing because we have so many people who pitch us. There are so many incredible people out there, and you just have to say no to some people even though – it, it breaks your heart to say no. People forget that we o- we used to only print the magazine twice a year. Now it's four times a year. So we're finally four times a year. You know, we only have maybe 50 episodes of my podcast, social media, maybe once a day. We do something on Instagram. So when you add that up, that's not a lot. And then we have our conferences, of course. But again, how many speakers can you possibly have at a conference? Yeah. There's only so many slots to fill. We feel the same pressure at Taste because we get these incredible pitches. We get messages on social and we have to say no. Or even the act of saying no can be even challenging. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can't even respond to everything. Yeah. It's a good – you call that a good problem. Yeah. You know, it's Completely. having so many incredible people out there now to cover. And, uh, yeah, just know if any of you have pitched me and you're listening, just know it does pain me to say no. Yeah. I'm also a Pisces, so it's awful (laughs) to say no. You've articulated your kind of buckets that you 
you operate in. I mean, you're, you're a print publication, but you're also Radio Cherry Bomb and two other podcasts. I listen to all of them. They're all amazing, great work, and I, I really like your style. And also, you've got conferences and offline events, and you've got networking uh, events around the country. How do you balance the three? And and the question is, is do you have a priority of the of of any of the three? Do you see the high like the growth opportunity in any of these three categories in particular? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they all do feed each other. I don't think one could exist without the other. And it, we were very lucky that that it we wound up being so diversified so early on. That was not a a master plan. And I think people should also know Cherry Bomb wasn't my full jo- my full-time job for a very long time. Mm-hmm. It was probably around January 2020 when I finally said, okay, no more other jobs, no yeah. more side projects. You know, like I ran Yahoo Food for a while. Yeah. I was like, I can't keep saying yes to these opportunities. Cherry Bomb's going to be my full-time thing. And then, of course, you know, March 2020 yeah. came came along. I know a lot of people had similar things happen to them where they had huge plans for 2020. But anyway, so we're – so, yeah, so we've got these different – I don't know what you want to call them, like different – just different categories yeah, of categories. the business. Yeah. I, uh, the one that excites me the most is events. I think as the world gets really more complicated – it is so important to bring us together as a community and bring us together in person. I'm obsessed with AI. I, I know a little bit about how your brain works, mm-hmm. and I think we're similar in that respect. So I'm sure you're slightly obsessed with mm-hmm. it right now, too. Getting together in person is going to be one of those things that AI just can't replace. Yeah. It, bra- it breaks definitely that that mold that we're going to be getting into. And also, I think the podcast as well, is, is it's very um, intimate. It, it also has, and we're, we're obviously like 20 minutes in and you're still listening, but I feel like these two categories that you really invested in are, are smart. And I agree with you because they are things that can't be replicated in digital world. And we're like leaning back into this conversation and, and meeting people. You meet people, you're doing the big jubilee every year, but you're doing many other events Sounds sounds like a great plan for you. Yeah, when we started Jubilee, I guess the first one was back in 2014. And not to keep beating up on the guys, but the reason we started Jubilee was because of an Eater article that Hillary Dixler wrote. And the title, I forget what the title was, but it was about women being left out of all these food conferences. Mm-hmm. But they had actual data. They had all these pie charts. And I was like, oh, we have to start a conference. And we had no idea what we were doing. I was like, how do you do a conference? Who knows? But we'll figure it out. So that's how Cherry Bomb Jubilee came about. It's now the number one gathering of women in the whole food world in the U.S., which we're super proud of. And it's gotten bigger and bigger every year. This year's, I think we had over 750 people there. Um, but I realized back in when that article came out that one of the things holding some women back in the industry was the lack of networking. And you know how important relationships are. Mm-hmm. It is so hard to succeed without relationships, and I think that's such a big part of bringing all of us together as a community. One of the things that I love every time we go to a different town, and we just did an event in Atlanta at uh, Annie Quatrano's Star Provisions. Yes, and what an amazing food city. Love it. great food. Just a fascinating city, period. But yes, a great food city. So we did our event at uh, Chef Annie's Spot. Every It's the second time we did an event there. Every time we do an event there, all these people who only know each other, either by reputation or they know their, their Instagram following or something like that, um, they always remark 
how excited they are to, to meet each other in person finally. And that just warms my heart so much. And we hear it time and time again. Even people who have businesses on the same block, that happened in Atlanta. It happened when we were in Tucson. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because people who run food businesses are so freaking busy that it's it's hard for them to leave their yeah, the running of their business. So you host something on a Monday night. Exactly. You get them all together. You give them an excuse. You you give them great food. I, I love it, Carrie. I mean, I, I just admired what you've built um, around the events business. And and Jubilee is an event. And you have to ask you, um, be it a cover or be it a Jubilee guest. I mean, Carrie, you make things happen. Um, if you know you or we observe you, you, you like I, this is a crazy question to ask. But is there somebody who you've not been able to have on the cover of your magazine? Or at the festival that you just, it's like a grail of yours. <laughs> That's a good question, Matt. Uh, yes, of course. There are a ton of people. I mean, Oprah. I love Oprah. Yeah. But in fairness, I really haven't asked Oprah. So, Oprah, I know you listen to Matt's podcast yeah. every week, so I'll be in touch. Yeah. Uh, you know who I absolutely adore and we just haven't been able to make it work out timing-wise is um, Michelle Zahner from Japanese Breakfast. I have so much respect for her. Yeah. I loved her last album, also called Jubilee, which I loved. And her book was just yeah, incredible. Crying in H Mart. Crying in H Mart. Knows it and there's going to be an adaptation at some point, I'm sure. There she she I think she wrote the screenplay That's and right. she was just posting a f- few weeks ago, a month ago, looking for the lead. Yeah. So they were doing this sort of open casting call. If you haven't read Crying in H Mart, I just think it's such a brilliant book. And it's really heartbreaking. I mean, it's about her and her mother. And I just sobbed through big chunks of that book. In a weird way, I almost don't want Michelle Mm. to come on the podcast. I would love to have her speak at Jubilee and I would love to have her on the cover. Sometimes you don't want to peel back all those layers and you don't want to know about the process. And that was why I didn't become a music journalist. I realized I was so much happier being a fan of music than I was being on the inside of the music industry. And I almost like that veneer and I almost respect when an artist doesn't want to reveal too much. They say never meet your heroes, but also never meet those you deeply admire too. Because obviously art is operates in a box mm-hmm. and you sometimes just don't want to break that barrier. But. Yeah. You know who we haven't been able to get yet and it's really funny? The actor who plays Julia Child on the Julia Child HBO Max show. And (laughs) I know why you said, oh, because we do the official companion podcast for that. And she's never been a guest on it. And she does not do a lot of press. And I respect that. Now, um, season two is coming this fall, by the way. Oh, I can't wait to. I love that that you're doing podcasts with with TV shows. It's it's a great model. It's nice. The official companion podcast is a lot of fun. How do you book your covers? Is it is it mostly you, all you? Is it like uh, a meeting for the year? Because you've got four a year. You're obviously kind of charting them out. How do you do that? There's no yeah. hard and fast process to it. It it really, it's an emotional thing. It's who kind of deserves to be on the cover. I think a great example is when we had Paula Velez from Bakers Against Racism. Sometimes it's just so painfully obvious who should be on the cover you you would just regret not putting someone like that on the cover because of the moment that they're having and because of uh, the impact they're having, not just on the industry, but even beyond that. It's um it's really hard. It's really it's hard. The whole process of doing a celebrity cover um, and 
and really, it's it's so much more difficult than doing food. I mean, you've had Claire Saffitz, Aaron French, Dory Greenspan, Sophia Rowe, Ruth Rachel on your covers. You're doing four a year. They come at you quickly. You have to book these shoots. They're they come ver- so quickly. They and come in, so quickly. And in fact, if you were to look at my my text right now, our managing editor was texting me on the subway like, you have to make a decision about the September cover. Mm, what's the hint? September's oh, big. Oh, a hint. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. It's pregnant with possibility. Oh, I love it. I think I know who it is, but I'll <laughs> go off mic with you. And you have the Magnolia Network stars on your cover. I, I mean, just really brilliant work here, just bringing together um, pop culture and food and doing it in a cool way. That's It's hard to do that, I feel. We definitely try. The covers are so much fun. Yeah. Every single cover we've done, except our Julia Child one, has been shot by Jennifer Livingston. Oh, cool. Who's an incredibly talented no idea. photographer. Yes. So she's she's given us such a gift in in all these covers that she does. She is so energetic. She's just really wonderful to work with. And she puts all the, the cover subjects so at ease when she's shooting with them. That cover, the new one with all the Magnolia stars, we, you won't believe this, but we shot it backstage at Jubilee. Oh, I, I completely believe that, and that's how it has to get done because we're talking for a year plus your busy schedule plus the, it's hard. And people's it's other people's schedules too, of you course. know, getting them to New York, that's having it. their schedule sync with Jen's schedule. So a lot of times it does come down to scheduling, which is really hard. So you just have to keep moving certain people forward to the next issue, to the next issue. Um, yeah. I love it. Let's uh, – we'll get into the, the the new issue, which dives into t- television, but let's go back a bit. I want to hear about your life growing up. Staten Island, when I when I, when I I hear your your voice, you have a little bit of that. You have an accent. I sound like a New Yorker. You, I mean a little bit, I yeah. I can you, sound way more like a New you Yorker certainly if you can. want. Mm-hmm. But what was food like growing up in Staten Island for you? Uh, <laughs> you threw me with the accent question. I was just thinking – because we record at Rockefeller Center. Yeah. And sometimes if I don't catch myself, I say Rockefeller uh-huh. Center. So, yeah, it does come out I sometimes. love the way you talk. I mean, I love your podcast. I listen to all the time. But, like, it, you are a New Yorker. It is through and through. You're not hiding from it. I'm very proud to be a I New Yorker, it. Matt. Uh, food growing up, I am the oldest of five kids. I have very young parents. It was a lot of convenience food. It was the 1970s. I do not come from a family of great cooks. My mom definitely tried her best. It was a lot of TV dinner. It was a lot of hot dogs. It was a lot of pizza on Friday nights, Chinese food. We didn't have a lot of money, so we didn't go out to eat a lot. People didn't go out to eat as much back then, you know, but but to take out five kids was a lot. So we would maybe go out for birthdays and things mm-hmm. like that or go to the pizza place. We did go to a pizza place called Pal Joey's. Okay, I was wondering, Pal Joey's was your spot for pizza in Staten Island? Pal Joey's was the pizza spot. Growing up, I, I gravitated toward other places like Danino's. If you're mm-hmm. a big pizza fan, I'm sure you know. Uh, Nunzio's, rest in peace, doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, a lot of pizza. My, my heritage is Irish, German, Scottish. We're not, you know, was mm-hmm. those places were not known for their food. Back then, I know the food cultures in all of those countries have changed dramatically. Beautiful food now, places like Ireland and Scotland and, of course, Germany. That's a very broad statement. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's true. It should be said more. I mean, we, we still have, like, fallen to these weird um, stereotypes about Ireland. I mean, true. you've done a lot of work with Ireland. I feel like you, you have, I have a cultural history as well with Ireland. And food is – the seafood is, like, as good as anyone. Well, you also have to remember – you know, my my ancestors fled during the, the famine, so right. they weren't coming here with all their food traditions. And anytime on on Radio Cherry Bomb, when I interview somebody and talk about their childhoods and who, 
you know, who inspired them and who did the cooking and all of that. It, it almost hurts my heart a tiny bit when I hear them talk about cooking with their grandmothers and these big family meals and all these things. And I just didn't grow up with that tradition. When you would make it to Manhattan as a as a young woman, as a as a teenager, as going into college, what what were you doing in terms of restaurants? Was there a scene that you were involved with? Because you're so involved now with New York City. But let's go back to that time when you ended up in Manhattan. Yeah, I was I was hopping on that ferry and coming to Manhattan as often as I could. And a few places stand out. I don't have a ton of food memories. Because again, you know, you're a kid, like you don't have a lot of money. I had a lot of part-time jobs and I would buy records, yeah. not food. But I loved Veselka. I've been eating at Veselka since the 80s. And I absolutely love that the food tastes exactly the same yeah. in the eight, today as it did back in the 80s. Uh, places like, um, oh my gosh, a lot of places on St. Mark's, yeah. you know, you could go and have dinner and and uh some wine and nobody would even like dojo nobody, nobody would card you back then back dojo then. even you know oh i don't remember i wasn't yeah. as cool as you meant no, sorry it's, no not really cool it's the carrot ginger salad is all i can remember about dojo and there, there were no pizza there were no one dollar slices back then but maybe pizza was just a dollar back then i don't know <laughs> i don't know but yeah no no real high school food memories do you have a, a fancy food memory an early fancy food like you know back in the 80s when uh, Fr- french restaurants ruled the roost my mom would make some French food, which I always found really odd, but I guess that was the lingering influence of Julia Child yeah. on the food culture at large. So she would make quiche and she would make beef bourguignon and I would sit there and pick every tiny little speck of onion out of the beef bourguignon or boeuf bourguignon. I love it. Or Both ways work say it. For, right? for me. I mean, I do have a funny memory of going to some restaurant for my for my birthday, and I was allowed to bring a friend, so my friend Chris came, and he ordered a lobster. And I remember my siblings sitting there with wide eyes, like they couldn't believe somebody would have the audacity to order the most expensive yeah. thing on the menu. And I think my family talked about that for years. Oh, it's such a good oh. Chris man, good 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 choice. You gotta go, go big or go home. Sometimes when you're the guest, but Carrie, thanks for sharing the old New York memories. It's I feel like we need to talk more about old New York. I feel it's it's just vanishing. Literally, the magazine shop in Avenue A is closing. Do you see that oh, on Instagram? Is it? Yeah, the one that the one at Fifth and A. Man, I'm doing my best to to keep Ugh. print alive. You really are. Yeah, no, I you, told you I hired a CEO. Right. Yeah, we can talk about that. Yes. I didn't know if that was in the elevators. So. Yes. So congrats on that. Thank you. What is your role then if you're not CEO? You know what? A lot of people have asked me that. I never once called myself the CEO. No. So my role is uh, founder, yeah. editorial, creative, those things. You're a founder. It's a, what a founder does. You you do everything. But happily, she believes in print as much as I do. Yeah. Well, you look at, like, the landscape. There's amazing print publications, not just in food, but everywhere uh, we look at like Racket comes to mind. And, of course— Oh, I love Racket. Racket's great. Who mm-hmm. doesn't love Racket? Um, Racket, Cabana, yeah. even Cake Scene. I mean, I just love—I I love anybody who does anything in yeah. print. Shout out my co-host, Eliza Barbanal, Cakezine. Check it out. Buy it. Buy Cherry Bomb, too. You guys got to link up for something, the two of you. Oh, we would love to. Yeah. They're going to be on if they, you know what, I forget, like when we record things versus yeah. when things air. I'm yeah. sure that happens to you as well. Yeah. Uh, they're going to be on The Future Food Is You, Great. which is our podcast with Abina and Samwa. Amazing. So let's talk about your new issue. It's devoted to TV. You ask contributors for their favorite food TV star show scene. 
Let me ask you first, are, are we living in the golden era of food TV right now, do you believe? I think it's a golden age for women in television because they're being presented with these TV opportunities that they never had before. And you look at shows like Padma Lakshmi's Taste the Nation or Take Out with Lisa Ling, you know, shows like that where they really get to hit the ground, explore mm-hmm. a city or theme or concept. And they get to do what Anthony Bourdain always did. You know, and I know a lot of women really wanted to do shows like that. Uh, the women on our cover. The Magnolia stars. A lot of people don't think of the Magnolia network and food. Uh, They think about it in terms of home design. Shelter, you know, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But there are some really beautiful food shows on there. You know, Erin French from The Lost Kitchen has her show. Zoe Bakes. uh, I think Zoe Bakes is just extraordinary. Her, Her name is Zoe Francois. Her business is Zoe Bakes. I mean, you just do not see women in their 50s with long gray hair. Yeah. And glasses. Yeah. And, and, Magnolia is willing to get behind someone like that. And I think it just, it sends such an awesome message to people out there. Yeah. What instinct to put them on the cover and recognize that Magnolia is is more than just, you know, the founders. It's It goes beyond that. And it's also the type of show that they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I love Top Chef. I love, sure. I love every, I love Padma and Gail and Tom, but I'm not wild about competition shows. I love the sort of kinder, gentler, education-focused approach that Magnolia is doing. And that's really why we put them on the cover, because they were so leaning into a really special kind of show. And that was a pure editorial decision to put them on the cover? That yeah. wasn't like a partnership right <laughs> And you know what's funny? A lot of, a few people were like, did the Magnolia Network pay you? I said, I wish they paid me exactly. to do that. No. They should have paid you. No, I, and I asked that question only because it, it just shows, it's this pure instinct from you as the editor of the publication to put something on so timely because yeah. I agree with you. It is very gentle. It's what we need right now. The competition stuff is kind of a little washed, I think. But I do have to say, I fell in love with Gordon Ramsay's new show. <laughs> yeah. And, and the fact that I'm saying anything related to Gordon Ramsay and being in love is, is shows how much progress I've made and the world has made. But Naisha Arrington is one of his co-hosts on the show. I think it's called Next Level Chef. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I love Naisha so much. Let me just watch this show. And I was blown away by the first... Have you watched it? I have, yeah. I've that watched like the is, first two or three episodes and that, that set, set the multi-layers level set is cool. I mean, they spent money on that. And I did such a deep dive into food television for this issue there's a lot of dreck out there. I know. But they really spent the money on Gordon's show, not just on the set, but the prize is too high. They're not paying me either, just FYI. But the prize is $250,000, which you know is life-changing yeah. for a chef. And mentorship. Gordon and Naisha and the other guy, I apologize. Yeah. Other guy, I don't know your name. Isn't it Richard Blaze? Oh, maybe. Yeah. yeah. The guy from Top Chef from San Diego. Cool haircut. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's him. I but those are great prizes. Um, but there is so much out there beyond the competition show. And we just kind of wanted to shed a light on that. We did a really fun list that I think is like our 47 stars and up-and-comers and yeah. icons. Uh, because I almost feel like people need a TV guide these days. Some shows people don't even know exist, and they're really worth watching. Um, and then it's worth kind of shouting out some of the classics like Ina Garten and yeah. Nigella. I love that 47 package. It was really smart. And you really, the editorial work you're putting in is, it's not just interviews and cool photos. It's like real editorial work. What are we looking forward to this fall? I know you did a fall preview in the issue. What do you think, Carrie? There's so much, there's so many good cookbooks coming this fall. Yeah. It's, it's cookbooks, it's TV shows, it's, yeah. And a lot of books are 
books are being turned into shows, which is exciting. You've got uh, Black Cake, which I'm reading right now, which is going to be a show, I think, on Hulu. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Lessons in Chemistry, runaway bestseller, debut debut book. Um, That's being turned into a show on Apple TV Plus with Brie Larson. Yeah, we had her both. on the podcast, the author, um, when she released the book. And it, what an explosion that book was. Mm-hmm. It's cool. Um, and then for cookbooks, have you been able, I know we're starting to get uh, advances in. Have you gotten anything that is like catching your eye right now? So many. I know. There are just so many cookbooks and I not enough library space anywhere to hold them all. Uh, very excited about Sola's book. Yeah. Uh, 625 pages. Did it's, you know that? I, I I do. I've seen the PDF. It is, is massive. I mean, the the... Not even the average cookbook. Most cookbooks are like, what, 250 pages? Yeah. Like that is— It's like double the size of most cookbooks. That is a beast. Yeah. Uh, Erin French has a cookbook coming out. I can't wait. She's just had such a remarkable career. Again, Erin up at the Lost Kitchen in Freedom, Maine. Um, Those are two I'm really excited about. Elizabeth Poet, who's actually—a lot of the folks on our cover have books coming out. Elizabeth Poet, who has— the Ranch Table, and uh, she has a show on the Magnolia Network. She has her debut book coming out. She is such an original. She is a seventh-generation rancher who's out in California's Central Coast. I think the family ranch is 17,000 acres. Wow. And they're really doing beautiful work out there. And she's such an original story, and it's a beautiful, beautiful book. And then Samantha Senevaratna, friend mm-hmm. of ours from Brooklyn, uh, has a baking book coming out. And Samantha is just so obsessed with baked goods and loves teaching. And it also is a beautiful book. Love the, the, the great preview. Thank you for keeping it very concise. I love that. Now, um, I have to ask about Padma. She left Top Chef. What's your bet on the next Padma on Top Chef? Okay, should we wager? Yeah. I, if I answer, you have to tell me who you're betting on. I will. I have one. Uh, well, you know what? I don't know who is in the lead, but I know who I would love to see get the job, and it's Sophia Rowe. Yeah. I just think she would be so perfect. She's got an amazing audience. She and Padma share a lot in terms of empathy and curiosity and having a fan base that's just obsessed with them. I think she would bring a really special new flavor to the I show. I love that. Pick with no inside information. I feel, I feel like Selena Gomez is going to get it. No, your face. I love Selena it. Gomez. Why do you say Selena Gomez? I feel Selena Gomez is is like going to double down in food. Mm-hmm. I think she obviously has her shows on HBO and and her presence. And I just feel she is on our list. Yes. If if pop culture, if 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 that show is going to maintain its momentum and grow, a Selena Gomez doesn't hurt that case. That's the, that's the argument for Selena Gomez. I'll tell you why it can't be Selena Gomez. Her schedule will just never nope. allow for that. Fair. You, it's a behind-the-scenes kind of and in the weeds. I don't know that Bravo would want to invest that kind of money. She would be very expensive to get. Yeah. There's a lot of, like, there's a lot of uh, headwinds for the Selena Gomez pick. And I'm not saying that I, this is what I want, but I just feel my gut instinct is somebody like that. So where should—what's what are we wagering? A meal somewhere. Let's go. Um, where do you want—like, we're going to do Korean barbecue. Her name is Han. Sure. Let's do it. It's Okay, so you've got Sophia. I've got Selena. If it's a push, we'll both go. Anyways, Perfect. Regardless, I love that. When you're bit. raising money for independent media, and we had a little, like, back and forth off mic about the scalability of indie media. I think I, it's not like a 10x scale business. You disagree, potentially? Uh, you know what? Talk to, talk to the CEO about numbers. I mean, the reason <laughs> the reason I got a CEO yeah. is, well, first off, she's amazing, and I, I love her vision and her friendship and her partnership. But I have to be honest, working with 
accountants and bookkeepers and lawyers and and taxes and all of that really just fries my brain. Yeah. You need you need to separate, and as a founder, you need to keep the creative vision flowing. And my, my my comment is only that it's more like out of respect for media, and like when you come in with investment from somebody who maybe isn't doing the work, doing the podcast, doing the events, doing the articles, doing the cover shoots, and and realizing that um, all that adds up to a lot of work, and sometimes not the money that you'd expect, um, and the resources are required for it. It it sometimes doesn't really meet the expectations of the folks cutting those checks that can be. 20,000 they can be 20 million dollars i mean it, it, yeah, media I don't think so that's the kind of um investor yeah we would want or that we would attract i mean i think if you look at our history it's been slow and steady and very deliberate and i think that's why we're still here yep. 10 years later yeah wow 10 years my yeah. god yeah that's 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 i love that but we are doing it a little differently we're and maybe you've had some guests who did it this way but we're doing a community round via WeFunder. cool uh gage and tolner did that yeah. i was one of the investors in that ghost town oats i don't know if you know michelle oh, yeah. who's got ghost town oats um but i i love the whole idea of doing a community round and and that is more appealing to me. Yeah, we've had founders on here who've taken money only from, from private funds, from VC or private equity. We've had um, crowdfunded public, uh, founders, but never media with crowdfunding. So that's that's smart. Um, we did how, a Kickstarter 10 years ago. Now did. we're doing a WeFunder. So I remember when you did the Kickstarter. I, I absolutely got that first issue. I wish I could dig it out. I feel it's a It's worth it. it, it you could, if you need some cash, you can sell it on, on eBay. It on does eBay. sell for over $100 now. So like Lucky Peach, like Playboy, like Sports Illustrated, you have some completest collectors who are trying to get every up issue. Like Playboy. I'm glad you put us in that, in that well, camp. I'm, te- I'm teasing you. Historical publications in our country and Cherry Bomb is there. Exactly. And you know what? I I barely have a complete collection because we did a second Julia Child cover that was just in Whole Foods. And I think we only printed maybe like 250 of them oh or something. Gosh. And I only have one of them. And I think no one else in the, on the team even has one. Put it in the vault, Carrie. It, we call it the vault. <laughs> Um, this is taste. We ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check for you. You ready? No. It's been nope. so painful not to interview you, I have to say. You've been so great at <laughs> at, at, at not flipping it to me because I know that feeling because when I do podcasts for other stuff, it sometimes becomes that. And it's really annoying for the listener to like hear the, you know, the the grab, the mic grab because I do I do it all. It's bad. Thank you for being I tried a best. great guest. And let's just go fast. Okay. The best and pastry with coffee. Uh, the rose pistachio croissant at Le Bray Bakery in the okay. East Village. The best dessert, hands down. The Perry breast at Frenchette by pastry chef Michelle Palazzo. The most underrated piece of kitchen equipment. The dishwasher. Most overrated ingredient. I couldn't think of an answer, so I went to AI. I typed it into chat GPT, yeah. and you will laugh when you hear what the answer was. Truffle oil. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's such a great answer from chat. I mean, it makes sense. That's what AI is going to give you. It's going to give you what the media talked about, not the real answer, and totally smart. What food most defines New York City as a New York City native? A tie between bagel and pizza. Your favorite cookbook of all time? I love the Silver Palette cookbook. Favorite recent cookbook? We'll say under five years. 
I love Mayumu by uh, Abby Belingit, the Filipino-American baker. And she is just, she is such a superstar and one to watch. Your favorite podcast that you do not make personally for Cherry Bomb? Yours, Matt. Oh, my God. Not that one. That's really sweet of you. Oh, I can't say that? No. Uh, My favorite podcast that I don't make, I adore uh, Ruth Rogers' podcast. I think it's called Ruthie's Table 4. And she is the legendary chef and owner of the River Cafe in London. Her podcast is so beautiful. Great bookings. Such, like, unexpected bookings, yeah. The heavies come in there. And everybody's her best friend. It's amazing. Hey, when you Have around, you interviewed her? I, I no. Um, listen, I, I feel like I was in conversations to interview her. Uh, her. I like doing these in person, so I think it was a matter of scheduling. Put her on your list. She is just one of the Thank you. warmest, most incredible people. Last but not least, your favorite sandwich. Tuna salad, but only if I make it. <laughs> Celery, pickles, mustard, all the above, none of the above. Celery, Carrots, very, very, very finely diced, lots of mayo, probably more mayo than people like, and a little bit of Trader Joe's everything bagel spice. Love that call. New York City tuna fish always has more mayo than you want to know about. It's just the way we do mayo, which is heavy. I love mayo. I hate to confess that, but I love it. (laughs) Now you all know how basic I am. It's a pro-mayo show, Carrie. Carrie Diamond, thank you for joining This Is Taste. Thank you so much, Matt. It's wonderful to see you. Kyle Tibbs-Jones, this is Taste. Hello, Matt. It's nice to see you. It's um, just a real thrill to be here. I mean, I'm a huge fan of The Bitter Southerner, and I've been reading you, I mean, for many years. Oh, thank you. And long time coming to be on the show. Want to get into the history of your publication, how you make money, how you survive in this crazy media world. Now, let me ask you about living in the West Village in like 07, 08, mm-hmm. 09. Mm-hmm. What was that like? We, that was, an, it was a very transitional time. It was. I mean, 2008, we all know what that was like. Yeah. But I was working in PR, and um, it was, I mean, I grew up watching Mary Tyler Moore. You know, I wanted, I had been married, and then I wasn't married, and then I moved to New York, and I had a great apartment and a wonderful job, and... Um, it was a little tricky because I had children and they were going back and forth. We had an unconventional setup, but, um, it was just that it was a great three years. Great. And I I probably would still be here had it not been for the economy and everything that was going on. Yeah. So you, then you moved, you moved to Athens then? No, I moved to Atlanta. You moved to Atlanta right on. And then three years later we started the Bitter Southerner. So I'm very glad I moved back because everything worked out and I'm doing the work of my life. You know, this is my, um, absolute dream situation career-wise now, but I love New York. I can't come enough. And since the pandemic, this is the first time I've been. Oh, no way. Yeah, well, yeah. I haven't been welcome back. in four years. Yeah. Welcome back. Well, I want to ask you about The Bitter Southerner. I mean, first off, um, the name, you just you just kind of you, you, you stop on it and you're like, so what? what's the bitter part all about? What in the heck? Yeah. Well, in 10 years ago, this is our 10th birthday year, 10 years ago, we started an online publication and we had all lived, I was just talking about living in New York, we'd all lived elsewhere. And when we lived there, people were like, what, where are you from? What is it like there? <laughs> you seem very smart. Are you sure you're from the South? I mean, Stop it. yeah, Dang. crazy. And so um, three of um, my friends and I started The Bitter Southerner and The Bitter is tongue in cheek. I mean, it's we we talked about being bitter, but from the get go, it was all about telling um, stories 
through the lens of making our region better. Yeah. So a better South is more, you know, what we're about, but the bitter Southerner is our name, but it's always been tongue in cheek. Yeah. I mean, if you read the pages, it's nothing but tribute. I mean, you're not really shit talking anybody, but the bitter, it's a, is it a bitter pill to swallow or is it the reality of it? I mean, I feel like there's metaphor there. Well, when, when we started, we, um, our vow to ourselves is that we would stare down the problems from the past of the present, um, but we'd also celebrate all the things that we love yeah. about where we're from. And it was something that we put out into the world. We didn't see anyone doing anything like that. And so people, Southerners who had moved all over the world, were like, wait a minute, what? We hear, our, we hear someone on the Internet <laughs> talking <laughs> like us who think, bigger and are more progressive and wait a minute, what's going on? So it really resonated. And when we started, we just saw sort of a white space there for that kind of storytelling. And um, here we are 10 years later. Amazing. 10 years is Mm -hmm. like a hundred years of publishing. It is. I, I just have to recognize that, you know, 10 years ago, maybe a bit less, there was a moment in like New York City that we... We fetishized bourbon. We fetishized the pork belly. And it was like this southern fetish um, and this weird kind of perception of the South through the lens of like mostly white dude chefs. Yep. And you were always publishing against that grain and you survived it. I feel like now southern culture and southern food culture in particular, which you focus on, is the most diverse coverage around in our country. Well, thank you for saying that. I think it is. When I look back on that period... um, it made me uncomfortable the entire time. Yeah. Um, I think in 10 years we've published maybe three or four barbecue stories. One was about politics. Yeah. One was about Southern mutton. Gabe Buller did a great story about Southern mutton being um, like the Jewish barbecue in yeah. Kentucky. I mean, yeah. it was great. So there's always a twist. I think we've published a lot of oyster stories. Yeah. Um, but that whole bourbon and barbecue thing, um, it was a thing. And, you know, our whole goal from the beginning was to publish against the grain. Yeah. So I hope that we've done that. I hope people see us that way. Yeah, I mean, food is definitely, I would say, the majority of your content, but you, you do profile musicians quite often. Oh, uh, we, food is actually not even the majority. It's right. just one very strong bucket of right. of content. We, we talk a lot about music, yeah. social justice, literature. We, our sweet spot in the last couple of years has been the environment. So any story ar- around or adjacent to the, you know, environmental things has been very, very strong. Yeah. But we love food. No, food is definitely, and, and your new um, collection, Food Stories, Writing That Stirs the Pot, I have been able to review the PDF. And you've got stories about hot chicken, molasses, Ethiopian spaghetti. Christiane Lauterbach got it. Love, love her. her. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're you're like, really, there's a rich text here. Um, what is like an edit meeting like? Well, primarily, okay, I, I wonder what it's like at Taste because we have built our company on Slack. Yeah. We have been working remotely way before the pandemic. So we take submissions through Submittable. Mm-hmm. We also have people, you know, email us, our friends who know us. And then we put all of our submissions into a, you know, a document and we all talk about it. And it's interesting, you know, there are definitely stories where you go, oh, my God, that's gold. And then there are other stories that are, you know, we slowly come around to. But um, I don't know. I think we publish things we really want to read. 
Oh yeah, I mean, and do ideas come from you as well as the they submissions? Do. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's this. I mean, very similar to what we do. We're we're also remote only, and we we have a document that we review each week that from outside pitches, and right. we go over it, and some work, some don't, etc. Right. Yeah. Um, some things come in as, as a pitch. Some things come in fully formed. Yeah. To just you know almost a final draft. So it's all different. But when something comes across the bow like rosin potatoes, we're like, what? Yeah. Who has, A, even heard of this? And this writing is incredible. Caroline Hatchett wrote that for us. It, it's going in the book. and Or it is in the book. The book lands in the warehouse today, by the way. Oh, I'll my gosh. Muscle. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great feeling. So you're going to have, like, eyes on the final product today. Today. I'll be back late tonight, so I'll get to see it tomorrow. But oh, my Very gosh. exciting. Yeah. And and this is a part of your business. This, you self-publish these books. We do. We're a book publisher. So this year I think we have four, five to six titles and next year we want to do more. Oh, we'll get into the economics of what yeah. you're doing because I'm really curious. But yeah. I want to talk about first-person essay. I feel like it's a real strength of yours, but there's it's a difficult act to, to, to pull off. We, we oftentimes struggle with it here. Um, we don't want to mine personal essay from folks and just tell their story and not give them another assignment. So how do you think about first-person essay? Um, well, I think personal essays are very much – what we do. It's not everything. No, you, know, but you it's, write it's, it's, often. Yeah, it's, a, it's part of the mix. And I think it can be, you know, we publish things are, that are deeply personal. And then, um, then sometimes it's just a point of view. Matt, do you know what I'm trying to say? 100% like, agree. Yeah, there's like this spectrum. So I think a first can be um, definitely like a personal story, a grandma story, a story of your your upbringing, but it also can be just a deeply reported piece where the writer slips into first and, and tells about this journey and this reporting journey, and you do both. Right, we do well. both. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's uh, like Chelsea May wrote this story about sorghum and, and the making of it, and it's written like a poem. So it is, I mean, our writing is all over the map in style. Mm-hmm. And you just know when you're floored by writing. Um, my partner, Dave Whitling, says something so great. He's like, you can read writing and you're like, oh, this is good. But really good writing is like all of a sudden riding in a really nice car. You're like, ooh, this yeah. is smooth. Seats are feeling nice this and smooth. This is amazing. Yeah. 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 And so when we get those stories, we're just like, oh, God, this is great. Yeah. Let's get it out there. Keeping the pace up at like four or 5,000 words, too, is difficult. And you often, you know, your stories, you fall into them and you actually read them. Right. At, at a heavy word count, which is challenging. Right. What is the editorial process like? Are you editing rounds and rounds? Um, I... Sometimes, depending yeah. on the story, something that's deeply reported, like Shane Mitchell stories, yeah. can go through edits because it's months in the making. Yeah. I love her. She's written several pieces for taste as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's a big fan of yours. We talked about you Mutual. this weekend. I love her. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's great. I, I can't wait to see her in Chicago. Yeah. She's yeah. done a great um, series for us. It's called the Crop Cycle Series. And every year she takes another crop, a southern crop. She's done rice, grits, okra, tomatoes, onions. And um, she has a deep dive into those crops and what we can learn about ourselves, about our history as a region, about ourselves now and the way that we treat people and and what that food means to us as, you know, in, in modern culture is really um, remarkable. And her stories are great. How do you define the South? I know 13 states, many say there's a there's a map in, in some books, there's... Um kind of an area of like bubbles and other books. I feel like, how do you define it? 
Well, we get questions all the time. Like someone will write in and they'll say, you know, my husband is from Pennsylvania, but he's lived here for 25 years. Is he Southern? <laughs> and we're like, yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, everyone's welcome. Okay, and, I love that. Okay, yeah. I was going to say, if I'm in Atlanta for five years, I'm hoping I would get my card. Hundo P, yes. A lot of yeah. East Coasters moved to Atlanta. I love that city so much. Yeah, it's a great, a great town. So we, um, you know, geographically, there is a y'all line. You know, uh, but actually the South is just such a diverse mashup of things, you know, from Miami to Louisiana to Texas. It's um, it's not easily defined. I know it's challenging. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, you throw Texas in there and that's mm-hmm. wow, that's mm-hmm. the South, too. And it sure is. One, can I say this, Matt, that one thing that's been, you know, we talk a lot at The Bitter Southerner about social justice and, you know, what's going on in the world, we fight the good fight, right? And all of these stories are, you know, told through the lens of making the South better. But around 2016, we elected you-know-who. Mm-hmm. And then after 2016, think about all the things that have happened. And so now we tag every single story, every single everything we do with a better South and a better world. And we've really become more of a national magazine yeah. with a Southern accent. Because we the the topics we're tackling aren't really regional. They may come be of the region, but it's really relatable across the country. Well said, Kyle. Now, what's an example then of a piece that you think has a national point of view but has a southern accent? I love the way you say that. But something mm-hmm. that recently you've published or maybe something from the collection that you feel is tackling these larger topics that um, widens your readership a bit. Well— the last oyster tonger of Apalachicola. That story is about um, climate change and about the environment and about the um, changes that our government has made that doesn't mm-hmm. protect these these workers who've been, you know, harvesting oysters for generation after generation. That is felt around the country. Those so these stories are relatable um, to everyone. Yeah, well said. I want to ask you about Ernie Mickler. Um, He's the author of White Trash Cooking, which is close to home here um, because it was originally published by 10 Speed Press, which is um, part of Crown, where I work. Uh, And we we interview many authors from 10 Speed Press. But you wrote this piece that's in the collection about Ernie and his life. Tell us a little bit about this character because I feel like Ernie is one of those great writers in food writing history that maybe is forgotten a little bit. Overlooked some. Overlooked some. Well, Michael Adno one of the finest writers around, wrote that piece. And I have a little personal history with that book. That book came out— White Trash Cooking. Yes, when I was in my 20s. And I remember being offended by it. (laughs) Me too. I mean, Matt. Like, people were giving it at baby showers and, like, for (laughs) wedding presents. And, you know, and I was just like, what in the world? Yeah. And I never even picked it up or opened it. I was just so, like, no. And then all these years later, Michael Adno brings this story to us, and we and I re and you know, we've we're all evolving, right? Yeah. This is my own personal story. When I read Michael's story, I just cried because Ernie was an incredible person who was young and gay and growing up in um, Northwest Florida and just the country. And um, it took him years and years and years for that book to happen. And then on the I think the eve of the second edition coming out, he died of AIDS. Yeah, it, the story's 
beautiful. Yeah, it's it's a really, really powerful story. Um, and, you know, there's so much to be said about Ernie, about that book, about the aesthetic, about, you know, irony, about humor, the way that it cut to the bone. And the photography then, is compared to Christianberry. And, right. I mean, incredible. There are art pieces. Yeah. Exactly. I think there's a lot. And then there were subsequent follow-ups for the book as well. And it's still in print, I believe, mm-hmm. um, which is remarkable. And um, it's just it's just really neat that you decided to profile Ernie in that way. Well, it was finally, um, I think it was really special for him to get his due. And I hope we were a little bit of a part of that. Yeah, profile is a big part of what you do at Better Southerner. And I've, I think it's, it's. I mean, the Christian Lauterbach, let's talk about her. I feel she's a living legend. Um, you know, I've, I've been able to dine with her in the past. And she's uh, started a newsletter in the 90s in Atlanta, Georgia. Knife and fork. Yeah, exactly. She was like one of the original food bloggers before blogs were even invented. She was writing this. It was on paper. Right. Let's talk about her <laughs> a little bit. I love it. Um, she uh, is a character. Yeah. And wise and never minces words. And um, I love that story. Wendell Brock is a favorite. Oh, yeah. Um, he's a terrific writer, yep. a terrific friend of the Bitter Southerner. And, um, yeah, that was a special story. We'll link to that 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 story in the show notes as well. Thank um, you. What's What are you working on? Can you say, can you hint at anything? I know that you you operate a website and you operate a print magazine. You do, you said, five books a year. There's a lot going on. Okay. We, um, yes, I'll go through our all of our stuff. We um, share a story online every week. Yeah. We publish a big, beautiful magazine twice a year. This, the fifth issue, um, we just published that, Big Frida. Is yeah. our cover story. She's fabulous. Amazing. And you've had Michael Stipe on the cover. You've Michael had- Stipe, Kevin Morby. Yeah. Uh, Killer Mike. Yep. Uh, one thing in that magazine, I'll just um, go on a little bit of a tangent, is inside that magazine, we do a letter from home. And um, our first letter from home was written by Jimmy Carter. Mm. Um, the second one was Alice Walker. Ann Patchett just wrote the letter from home. It is a it is such a wonderful piece of real estate where some really special people are writing that yeah. that piece in our magazine. It's really fun outside of the cover story and all the features within. But yeah. anyway, so the magazine twice a year. Next year, you might see it more. Wow. Um, we have a podcast. Yeah. Batch. It, which batches and you, you release it in batches. We le- Yes, that's right. Yeah. I love that about yep. that. Batches. Um, we'll have a food batch that will be um, a companion batch to the new book. Food stories, writing that stirs the pot, which brings me to the other part of our business, which is book publishing. We have, again, five or so titles this year. Hopefully next year we'll have twice as many. Um, And we – book publishing, magazine. Yeah. Newsletter. So let me ask about the business. So so it sounds like this is a a small, very ambitious, scrappy operation run on Slack, remote only – I think right now we're at a time when, when food media is, is really distressed and there isn't a lot of money in food media. Are you taking outside advertising or are you making money off of these books and then subscription? Is this like a subscription model? Okay, here's our business model. But I do want to correct something. We do have a little office. We all live in Athens, Georgia. Not we all. My partners and I live in oh, Athens, cool. Georgia. Eric Neesmith is our publisher. Dave Whitling is my co-founder and he's our editorial director and creative director. Brilliant. 
we all have a little office in Athens, Georgia. Oh, great. It's actually on the street where I live. Oh, that's great. So, so you I can walk, walk to there. work. You yeah, to work. I mean, it's super Mayberry. What's lunch like in the office? Do you guys have any kind of kitchen situation? Do you have like a refrigerator? Um, we eat a lot of tacos. Oh, damn. Athens has really great tacos. Oh, yeah. I mean, Hugh Atchison's there. Yes. I mean, his restaurant's in Delos. Five and ten. My delish. God, great chef. I, I'm sad he closed the place in Atlanta. I know. I loved that place. Empire, I made a lot of memories at Empire State Empire South. Empire State South. Yes. I love it. I, me as well. Midtown, mm-hmm. a great, great mm-hmm. restaurant. Fantastic chef yeah. and an author of ours. I love him. Right. So um, a lot of good food in Athens. Yeah. And it's growing. The food scene is growing. Um, but anyway, so we have an office. We publish books and sell them. The way we support ourselves is an online general store where we sell T-shirts, our books, flags, prints. And um, we've joked that we're like a rock band with a merch table. But maybe for um, This Is The Taste um, podcast, I should say it's like a bake sale. Yeah, right on. (laughs) Where we sell things to support ourselves. So no advertising. It's like cleaner that way. It's super clean. No partner. The, the muck, muck, um, muck. Right. The product has always been really beautiful and and pristine. The, like the magazine and so the magazine has ads. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's cool. So, but um, but no digital advertising right, right, to right. clutter up the. Same at Taste. Yeah, we're the same way. We don't have digital advertising. We have we have partner content and we have ad revenue through that, right. but more curated and premium. I'd say we have a tiny bit of um, sponsored. Well, we call them the partner stories. Last year, we did one with the SELC, the Southern Environmental Law Center, and we did five environmental stories, which became a batch. I like that. Um, so you'll take, like, some funding from, from right. organizations like that. Great. Yeah. Uh, business is doing well, then? It is. We've grown in the last three years, especially. Amazing. So so to support you, and our listeners will want to pick up, so buy some merch, subscribe to the magazine, Buy a book. Um, buy a book. Buy some merch. Cool. Um, we do have a membership drop once a year. Oh, right on. Not unlike NPR. No, you definitely. Know, once a year. So you can join. Um, the focal point of our membership now is our subscription to the magazine. So you can, you know, subscribe to the magazine and become a member. And with that membership, you get free shipping from the general store all year and, all you know, special emails behind, yeah. behind the scenes. It's kind of like Content. a little bit of a Patreon model, yeah. uh, subsec model. Yep, yep. Internal uh, though. Definitely, I like it. it. It it makes a lot of sense. It's 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 very cool. It's it's definitely, and you have fans everywhere. Well, we do. Southerners live everywhere. Yeah. Uh, a lot of Southerners feel like they need to get, you know, out of town. Yeah. <laughs> Move to some far flung place. So we are a touchstone for yeah. people who live all over the world. It's fun. I mean, people say. You know, I have these friends, and they do not understand the South. So I will just give them the Bitter Southerner magazine. Please read this. This is more of the South I know. I love these that. These are my friends. This is what what it's like. Love to hear that. Let's talk about cookbooks. We're, we're talking about books, and we you know we publish many. Are there any cookbooks in your life right now that you really are are thinking, like I like this cookbook, or is it a classic cookbook? I I don't want to generally say they have to be new, but what do you think? Well, Matt, I just spent two days with Stephen Satterfield. Oh, right on. The Stephen Satterfield of Atlanta. Yeah. I love both Stephen Satterfields. But um, this is Stephen Satterfield of Miller Union, yeah. Atlanta. He has a new cookbook called Vegetable Revelations. And um, can I tell you about one recipe in there? It is, they're called Luck and Money Domas. So it's like a Greek doma, but cool. instead of the grape leaf, the rice and like field peas, like Hop and John is in yep. the middle. It's wrapped with collards or whatever greens you have. And so they're the shape shape of a Greek doma, 
But at this party, um, when we were in North Carolina to launch this book, he um, sliced them so they felt like sushi rolls. Oh, man. As appetizers. And it's one of the best bites of anything I've ever had. It looks really good. It sounds really cool. Delish. So yeah. that's, a, that's a cookbook I'm really into right now. It's brand new. I love it. And Miller Union is a, an, such a, a, a great experience. I've been there a couple times over the years and another just Atlanta restaurant. What a great restaurant scene. Stephen Satterfield changed the restaurant scene in Atlanta ah, right in now. my mind. I mean, he was, it was 2010, 9, I can't remember when he opened, but that was the beginning of all that, you know, at the time, farm to table and yep. and everyone else followed. and. He's just been, like, during the pandemic, he worked for restaurants and chefs to make things better. He um, is very active in environmental and, you know, strong environmental practices in the kitchen and leads the way with that. He's, a, he's like a good human. Yeah. He's a great chef and a great I love person. to hear that. Yes. Need more of those. Love that. I'll tell you, we have, um, I, today we launched our Summer Reading Roundup, which okay. is one of our most popular stories all year long where we publish this, the books that you should read this summer, and there are four food books. Can I mention those? Yeah, so so let me ask you. So this is an article, but it's like a book list for the beach Yes. for your summer if yeah. you're out in, like, Duck, North Carolina. If you're in Duck. Which yes. I, I dig. I, do, I love the Outer Banks. Or if you can't go on vacation and you're just in the break room. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like, like, like myself. So, yeah, no vacation. Gotta so, work. So the four books on our summer reading roundup that are food-related um, are Vishbots, I Am From Here, Cooking for the Culture by Toya um, Bodhi, Cardin Brown's Celebration of Sea Islands, and Kosher Soul, Michael Twitty's new book. Yeah. So four good food books. Really good mm-hmm. good reading list there. Mm-hmm. Um, Plus a lot of novels and other things. Novels, but those uh-huh. are the food books. Mm-hmm. And Vishbot's book, very cool, came out earlier this year, maybe last year. Cool. I love. I love. Yeah. I love his cooking. Yeah. Very cool. So, so do you have like a book club element? Do you folks come back and do you talk about it, or is it more? We should, eh. but we don't. It's okay. We did back in the day. Like I think when we first started, we had a book club, but it was just called a book club. We didn't really meet. Yeah. But I you, mean, but you got swag from the Bitter Southern Book Club when you would order books. But no. Oh. It was a book of the month club. I think. I don't even remember, Matt. I can't remember everything so we've done. The thing about media is, like, you have, like, a short-term memory for things that don't, like, super crush. Right. You know, you're like, if it's like, okay, like, we did a nice job. Like, if it didn't, you kind of just, like, move on. Yeah. You have to, like, if something of, doesn't change your processes. Right. You know, it doesn't That's become it. a part of your, you know, business model, then I just forget about it. Do you wake up excited every morning about what you're doing? I love what I'm doing. I can't believe... I can't believe we've been doing it 10 years. I can't believe I love it even more today than I did 10 years ago. I feel really, really grateful. I love to hear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a tough business doing independent media. Just well, so much respect. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for saying that. But I, I have to say, the people who read our stories and the people who wear our T-shirts, I've worked in media my entire life. I've never seen anything like this kind of um, love yeah. for a brand. And uh, I just feel really, really grateful that p- people that what we're doing resonates and that people find it useful and positive. We just want to make the world better. You know, it's not uh, there's not much more than that to me. Yeah. Hey, so like I said, let's put some love out in the world. I love that. Kyle, um, <laughs> Kyle let me ask you, what's your dream interview for, mm-hmm. the, for, for Better Southerner? I'm obsessed right now with Stephen Colbert. I want to talk to him. He's from South Carolina. His yeah. mark on his stage is the South Carolina moon and palm because it's He's, home. Yeah. He's brilliant. He's a good man. He wants 
the world to be better. He's hilarious. I'm very into laughing right now. I know. He records like two blocks down down the street. Just go knock on the door. It's going to happen, obviously. Well, I keep I, I asked if he wanted to write the letter from home, and his people told me there's a writer's strike. And I'm like, okay. But I'm going to keep asking. I think you got to keep asking. I'm really into Funny Matt. I really wanted to be on the Samantha Irby uh, episode with y'all. Wasn't it great? So good. I just think calling back to that episode, I'll link to that. It's a, it's a it's a great humor is is hard to pull off, but when it's sincere and deep, it really does hit. That's right. So hard to do. What about a writer, a dream writer you want to work with? Somebody that you read and and maybe have pitched. Well, probably I, many, but I haven't pitched this person yet. But um, I want to work with David Sedaris. Yeah. I like that one. Um, Hanif Ajurakib. Um, more Caroline Hatchett, yeah. who wrote The Rosin Potatoes. It's hard to say dream writer because I feel like we're working with our dream writers. I love to hear that. That's you got to support mm-hmm. your guys. I mean, yeah, the Sedaris piece, lots of the Southern memories in his, oh my God. in his world, in his writing. I know. That story about when they were kids and his mom pushed him out in the snow and locked the doors. Yeah. And then all they saw was the curtain closing in the kitchen window. And and Amy laid down in the traffic, tried to get run over so they could go back inside. I mean, just yeah, hilarious. He, he, he covers the dark, dark, dark things in such a So funny. Way. So funny. Yeah. But also, um, Matt, what about you? Would you write for us? I would love to. I mean, I, if I if I could... Find some time first, but second, I would love to write about what we have found covering Korean food in the South because it's truly um, outside Atlanta and Duluth uh, and Houston. Houston, Texas is you're hired. Let's do it. I mean, we got our book coming out next year, so let's do it. I mean it. I'll pitch you. I appreciate. No, I know you do. I appreciate that. I would love to work on something. Thank you for asking. Yeah, I love that. Um, Kyle Tibbs Jones, thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 